Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's episode of the Daily Delphi. Today we have a real treat. Um, I'm delighted to announce we are in the presence of Dr. Anthony Makronos, Senior Teaching Fellow of Classics at UCL. How are you, Dr. Makronos? I'm fine. Thanks for the invitation, Harry. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah, the honor's all mine. Now, today we'll be discussing something slightly more contemporary, given that it's sort of focused on the ancient world. And we'll be discussing Homer and cinema. So, Dr. Macronos, when does what's the sort of relationship between Homer and cinema? When does it begin to appear? Um, well, I mean, it actually begins um, the relationship between uh, what we can um, call Homeric films, if there is such a term, uh, starts already with the birth of cinema. Um, so um, already um, the Homeric stories um, have been, you know, uh, the subject of many operas. Um, they have been um, um, performed in different kinds of theatres. So there's a, a sort of background. The audiences know specific episodes from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the first cinematographers are very um, interested uh, in depicting, you know, in visualising those stories. Um, so um, it really starts with the birth of cinema and we see quite a lot of uh, silent films uh, already from the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, visualizing uh, particular specific episodes that have to do with the, char the Homeric characters. Um, uh, of course, when we are talking about silent cinema and when we are talking about these first films, uh, we're not talking about um, films that in the way that we uh, receive them now and in the way that we are thinking about a film right now. We are talking about very short films um, with, uh, without uh, sound, so it's, they are silent, and with the accompaniment usually of a piano. So there is, um, the audiences are uh, watching those films, whilst at the same time there's someone uh, playing the piano and adding the music uh, live. And we have got different kinds of topics and, uh, you know, some, they focus on different kinds of uh, episodes. Uh, the Odyssey story is quite prominent. Um, without that, of course, meaning that we don't have anything about the Iliad, but um, it seems that there is, at least for the, for the beginning, um, there is a sort of preference for um, Odysseus and his adventures. Okay. I suppose it makes sense, seeing as they're the sort of earliest stories in Western literature, to make them the earliest stories in cinema. Do you think part of that was, yes. I suppose, um, because it was a challenge to put on screen for directors, given the sort of fantastical kind of elements of those stories? Yes, I mean, the challenges were quite uh, many, as one could um, imagine. Um, not only in terms of how the stories are going to be visualized or were going to be visualized, but also, um, you know, whether um, the gods would be included or the choice of the specific episodes. How did they, what were the criteria, you know, that they were using in order to depict specific episodes? Um, and, and, and also, um, you know, the, the, the selection had to do also with questions about whether uh, to stay faithful to Homer. Um, you know, how far could those first cinematographers, um, you know, go? Uh, how close should they keep themselves to the actual plot of the Homeric epics? And sometimes they don't keep very close. 
Um, and what would be um, another challenge would be um, how to actually contain those particular episodes that they have chosen within the time limitations, you know, within say 10 minutes that the, that the film was going to be. So, you know, there were a lot, uh, plus of course that they were um, at the time, they would have to use um, actors or actresses from theater um, or even dancers, because uh, dancing also plays, you know, the movement of the body and um, because of the fact that we're talking about sound, silent films, plays a very important uh, role. So gesticularity is something which is absolutely important in those first films in order to depict the Homeric um, stories. Interesting. Now, being such a prominent facet of uh, the Homeric poems, it's only right to at least discuss heroes as the protagonists of these films, I'm assuming. Now, originally, epic poetry, it wasn't really, they didn't tell stories that were parables. They didn't have a moral uh, basis. I mean, if one reviews sort of Achilles throughout the Iliad, you probably wouldn't back him in terms of having the best moral compass, sort of indulging his vengeance, all that sort of thing. Mm. Over time, did cinema sort of slightly alter myths to accommodate that typical style of film, which incorporates the lesson and sort of gives the audience that uh, enlightenment through demonstration and such? Um, yes, I think um, this is a very interesting question, um, Harry. And I think um, probably uh, cinema did that because we have to take into consideration the fact that of course, when we have the uh, original stories composed, um, we don't have Christianity. And uh, when we are talking about um, cinema, we do have the filter of Christianity. So um, I think some of those stories and some of those cinematographers were very much interested in depicting some kind of morality or some kind of moral didagmas through the stories of Achilles, Odysseus, uh, the beautiful Helen. Um, but also it's quite interesting that um, some, some other times uh, there, there, there is this kind of shifting of focus uh, from the Homeric um, idea of what the story should communicate. So for example, the Iliad, if we, if we talk about the Iliad, the Iliad is a story of the story of the wrath of Achilles. Uh, and, you know, sometimes people um, mistakenly think that the Iliad deals with um, the Trojan War, but actually the, the subject is the wrath of Achilles, as the poet says in the, in the proem. Um, and it deals only with uh, a few days um, in, the, in the 10th year of war. Now, of course, um, in cinema, the, story, the, um, the films are following what we call linear narration, which means they take things from the beginning and they end with the, with the fall of, uh, of Troy, usually. Um, uh, so films, uh, so sometimes in the, in, in the filming narration, you have got the shifting of this focus from, let's say, the wrath of Achilles to the love story between, uh, for example, the love story between Helen and Paris. Um, this is especially uh, intense um, in the 60s when you have got, um, you know, several films, um, especially produced by Cinecita, but not only, um, where it doesn't really matter what the actual you know, original source narrates, the films feel, uh, the cinematographers and the films feel pretty free to uh, mix and match um, different stories, different characters, different heroes, you know, as far as they communicate an entertaining story. And as far as, um, you know, there is a love story somewhere. Um, so, you know, um, there are different, um, there's a, a different, you know, kind of, uh, 
focus on different fields. Um, I'll just bring one example. For example, in um, the 1955 Helen of Troy, um, we can very easily see uh, a, a focus on uh, on, on um, you know the relationship, the love relationship between Helen and and Paris, and uh, the whole film is actually about this. Uh, it's not; it has nothing to do with the wrath of Achilles, and it, it's partly. I mean, it it talks about the Trojan War as well, but the focus is on the relationship between Helen and and, and Paris. And there are there are many um, you know films like that that. Um, feel free to focus on the love relationships of the characters. And this is, again, understandable um, because there's an audience for that, you know, or there was an audience for that. I think there's still an audience for that. So it is quite um, understandable if we think about the fact that, you know, the films are a product and they address uh, specific audiences. It's perfectly uh, understandable that they try to, to uh, entertain the needs of these audiences. I think that is perfectly understandable. And I also think it makes sense given that myths sort of only really survived Christianity through being repurposed for moral tales, that that sort of had echoes in cinema. Um, you talked about linear narration and the idea of uh, giving the whole picture in a film, even though, as you said, in the original poems, for example, it only focuses on a small segment of, for example, the bigger Trojan cycle. Now, do you think that's in part because so much of classical literature has a basis upon sort of knowledge of the rest of classical mythology? For example, earlier in the Odyssey, you have Zeus sort of discussing about Clytemnestra and Agamemnon, and you're almost sort of, oh, forgive me, uh, background noise. You're almost expected to understand that as the reader because back then, chronically, the listeners to this poetry would have a consciousness of that. Do you think that's sort of why it's sort of being appropriated for modern audiences who probably don't have the same awareness of that larger classical background? Yes, absolutely. Um, this must be the answer. Um, when you read, <clears throat> when you read um, the Iliad, you get uh, the sense that uh, Homer is assuming so much knowledge uh, from his audiences, even from the first lines, when you know when he he's talking about Achilles, the son of Peleus, he doesn't have to explain who Peleus is because the audience knows. Um, so there is there is uh, the ancient audience, the knowledge of the ancient audiences um, is very different, or of the ancient Greek uh, audiences is very different from the knowledge of the international audiences that we have nowadays for for films. And uh, it, it, um, we can see this, of course, not only with films, but with novels as well. Uh, both modern novelists and uh, modern cinematographers cannot assume that uh, all international audiences will have um, the knowledge to understand uh, who each Homeric character is, what is their story, what is their background, what is the mythology behind that, and so on and so forth. So they have to communicate all these um, in a very short, in a very brief time, amount of time. Um, and the only way to actually do this is to start with linear uh, narration and try to uh, explain, explain things or depict things in such a way that the, um, the audiences actually understand what is going on. So you start with, say, uh, the judgment of Paris or the abduction of Helen, and you finish with, um, uh, with the fall of Troy. Um, rather than st starting, you know, in media res, as we say, in the middle of things, uh, as Homer does, uh, and sort of uh, 
um, try to assume who each person is or who each character is and so on and so forth. Um, furthermore, some of the films, especially in the 50s and the 60s, had uh, also, uh, but not only in the 50s and the 60s, had also um, got introductions where they were explaining, you know, the plot a bit or they were um, giving information about the chronology, about the characters, um, some sort of uh, summary about what is actually happening so that the audiences could actually uh, follow the plot and be interested. I think that's sort of an interesting but slightly sad reflection of how uh, gen genuine background knowledge of classics has sort of, sort of gone downhill since then, understandably. Um, and it's interesting because even back then, sort of Aristotle, I think, in his poetics specified that an epic poem had to start in media res for it to be sort of that's the best way for an epic poem to begin. But now you simply can't accommodate for that, uh, for that with this sort of audience. Um, now, we talked a lot about knowledge there and the idea that you, can, you have to assume almost that the audience knows nothing or it's not quite as accessible. Um, how important do you think it is for the sake of education, for the sake of seeing films as sort of this way to convey lots of information to the masses and get people interested? How important do you think it is to stay true to the original texts? Yes, um, this is a difficult question, but absolutely essential. Um, look, I mean, there are, there are, we have to accept that there are different kinds of audiences. We can't just put everyone under the umbrella of audience. You know, there are audiences, um, first of all, um, culturally different audiences. So, you, you know, an, an audience, uh, say from uh, the market of uh, Asia, of Asia or of China, would be uh, would have a completely different kind of Homeric reception than an audience from uh, you know perhaps a Western uh, country. Um, this is this is uh, one thing, and then another thing is of course the the educational factor. You know, a, a, an audience. Um, you know, a classicist would have a completely different kind of reception of the film than a member of the public who have ne has, ne has never heard the story before or um, someone young who reads for the first time Homer. So we have to make, I think, a distinction between, um, you know, it's, it's quite, it's, it's a complex matter, you know, it's not, it's not a simple matter, but um, the film has to address all the needs of those di very different kinds of, of audiences. So, um, when, when it is produced and when it is created, um, the cinematographer has to take into account um, what kind of audience uh, it targets and how it can include, how, how it can be inclusive. Now, um, of course, uh, uh, we should also add to that kind of complexity uh, the idea about uh, entertainment and education, whether we are going to watch an, a film about antiquity because we want to learn something or we're going to watch a film uh, about antiquity because we want to be entertained. Um, so, you know, and it makes a, a huge difference. Uh, for sure, films about antiquity create a lot of interest. Uh, and it is from this aspect, it is quite important for classics and for our fields that you have got films um, you know, that narrate the ancient plots because we have got younger audiences who become interested, not only younger, but also, um, you know, people who have never heard the stories before and so on and so forth. So it creates interest and this is for sure. 
Um, on the other hand, uh, if you uh, think about the educational factor, you will have to, I think teachers have to think very carefully um, how they are using these films in order to educate their students or their pupils, um, keeping in mind that uh, those films uh, divert from the original. Uh, Sometimes uh, they have got very strong divergence. They have got different kind of plot even, um, and they should uh, they should be ready, I think, as teachers to underline those differences. And why not to say that this is a different kind of cultural project and um, cultural product than the Homeric text? Uh, the Homeric text says this. Uh, this film depicts things in a different way and you know according to the ideas of the cinematographer or the thing that is producing it. So I think it is useful to make these. Uh, distinction uh, rather than projecting that the film is actually what Homer has composed. Um, and then for sure, I am pretty sure that if we use it um, in a correct way educationally, uh, it will create a lot of interest um, in people. And there are a lot of people indeed who will go back and read the original story from Homer. Yeah, and I think that's, that is one great thing is that sort of, it's cinema is so accessible that it can just uh, lure people into the subject further by giving them a taste. But I suppose, and we talked about um, accuracy of the, orig the original text, the idea of focalizing slightly so it's on a different, um, something different at the center as opposed to the original poem. Now, yes. if you look sort of the more recent films, you mentioned films from the 60s or 50s, if we look more recently, mm. we've got, I think it's fair to say, the best uh, critically acclaimed film to do with the ancient world is Gladiator, Ridley Scott. Now that's interesting because although it probably did raise a lot of awareness of classics, it is an entirely sort of almost fictitious story set in that time. So that hasn't derived any particular inspiration from the poems of antiquity, mm. but almost uh, still sets itself in the same sort of place in the Roman Empire. Do you think that's a good thing, firstly? And do you, secondly, do you think it would be possible to create a, a properly critically acclaimed film, a good film, staying very true to the original um, epic poems? Obviously, bearing in mind that you've got oral composition versus sort of perfected fine cinema. Yes. So to answer your first, first question, I think Glad Gladiator has started a kind of... Um, um, almost a kind of revolution in the depiction of antiquity in modern times. Um, we have seen that with, you know, with what has happened after Gladiator. There, there have been so many films um, followed the example of, of uh, Gladiator and the success of Gladiator. Uh, take, for example, you know, Alexander 300, Troy, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, in a way, I think Gladiator um, did this because of the fact that it was so original. Um, as you said, it, uh, it probably it was based on a, on a combination of sources, but not very faithfully. So there was a lot of creativity in the reconstruction of the of, of ancient Rome. Um, it had a very good cast um, and a very good director, Ridley Scott. So, you know, it's, um, if you have got, I think if you have got um, the, uh, a good recipe, so, you know, if you uh, have got, um, 
the right script, uh, the right historical advisors, the right cast, you know, the, um, if the vision of the director about antiquity um, is appealing and so on and so forth, uh, you, you can have indeed a very good film about antiquity with a good story, not necessarily based on an ancient source. Um, now, there have, been, um, there have been efforts in the past by very prominent directors uh, to depict uh, antiquity uh, based on, on particular sources. And some of them um, had success. Of course, it depends what you mean by success, whether it is, um, you know, uh, whether when we, mean, when we talk about success, do we mean that, um, you know, they made a profit or do we mean that uh, 100 years from now people will talk about them? So, you know, again, this is, this is something debatable, but um, there have been uh, quite a few films that we, we consider as, as successful. I have to mention here um, that um, to answer your question about whether, we, whether I, I can see someone who, um, you know, could actually have a very successful, produce a very successful film which would be based on the ancient source, um, there has been a very good uh, effort by Stanley Kubrick and he was thinking about um, creating a film up, um, about the Iliad, but this eventually did not work out. Um, but of course, he has done the Space Odyssey, which is uh, a very good reception of, of a very good and actually uh, original and creative reception of, uh, of, the, pro of the prototype, you know, of, of um, the actual Homeric Odyssey. Um, but, you know, overall, uh, we have to keep in mind that this is something very difficult. It is something that would re require a lot of money. You need to... Um, uh, you know, cast a lot of uh, good actors, you would probably need to make decisions that could compromise that. So for example, do you want all the gods? Do you want to appear or do you want, what is your decision in terms of gods? Should they physically appear or not? Do you depict them as psychological forces or as real people and so on and so forth? Or do you just omit them, you know? And all these, all these choices have been made, you know, they have been, um, we have had different directors following those choices. So it is not, it is not an easy task. And, you know, all, all these have to be done within the framework of a successful uh, financial product. Um, and that makes it even harder. But um, I don't see why not. You know, um, there have been successful films that um, depict an antiquity. And uh, we have got uh, the help of technology uh, even nowadays, which makes uh, sometimes things um, easier. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't, I don't think that um, we cannot have someone who, um, a good director who could actually um, depict uh, antiquity in a way that would attract uh, huge audience, huge numbers of audiences internationally, and at the same time um, have a very successful financial uh, product. Uh, if you want my, my view. Uh, my personal view, I would like Christopher Nolan to do something uh, with the ancient world, but we'll have to wait and see. I, I do like Christopher Nolan. Um, are you looking forward to seeing Tenet eventually when that, when that comes up? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, slightly less classical, but I'm a massive fan of Christopher Nolan's work. Yes, yes, me too. And Christopher Nolan was UCL as well, so there's one additional <laughs> reason. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. Macronos. Is there anything else you'd like to say on Homer and Cinema? 
Uh, just one thing I want to say in terms of uh, the gods um, that, you know, it is an interesting uh, subject and uh, we always discuss with my students about um, whether the physical presence of the gods uh, in a film is something to, um, you know, to, um, to go for or whether uh, the directors should actually omit, you know, the gods or choose different ways in order to depict the gods, say, for example, with uh, statues or with uh, architectural backgrounds sometimes, um, or even, as I said, depicting them, depicting them as psychological forces or uh, allegories, which uh, again is a, is a very big part of the Homeric tradition, tradition in terms of Homeric um, interpretation. Um, so we have got already from the beginning of the creation of the epics, uh, uh, a, a large trend of filmographers sometimes uh, go for that. Uh, some others, they prefer to omit the gods. Uh, it is true that uh, in some efforts, in some filmic uh, efforts, uh, when you include the gods, uh, the stories sometimes, sometimes tend to become more like a fairy tale. Uh, as it happens with some of the Odys Odysseys that have been um, depicted. But um, at the same time, we should uh, keep in mind that uh, when we talk about visual representation, we don't only think about films. We, nowadays, we can think about TV series as well, or even documentaries. So, you know, there's a large uh, selection of visual modes in which, according to what filmographers and directors want, um, we could depict those stories, um, make them known to wider audiences, uh, to international audiences, and um, attract, you know, uh, young people with, with the magic, you know, and with the uh, um, didactics of those stories and what uh, um, they tell us about the human condition, which is what makes them classical. Well, they've certainly lasted this long. It would be a shame to see them capitulate uh, now. Now, thank you very much, Dr. Anthony Mekmos. I suppose just before you go, a couple more, uh, well, less serious questions. Do you have a favorite ancient Greek comedy? Ancient Greek comedy? Yes, forgive me for putting you on yes. the spot. But... Yes, I, yes, I love Lysistrata. Lysistrata <laughs> is my favorite um, uh, ancient Greek. I find, I find the whole idea of, um, you know, how I find how Aristophanes used the whole idea of, um, if a female uh, sexual revolution hilarious I, I just love it i have watched many of those many uh, performances of lysistrata and uh, i never feel tired of it I, I and i always laugh when when uh, i watch which i think it's is uh, what makes a successful comedy you know classical if you can uh, if you can actually depict um things or situations uh, which uh, are contrary to the to reality you know contrary to what was happening at the time and um make your audiences um you know laugh and uh, entertain them so if i had to choose one i would go for lysisra i guess interesting and i sort of that's a testament to its longevity the fact that it's still making people laugh today well yeah, absolutely thank you very much dr anthony Macronos, all the way from greece it's been an absolute yeah. pleasure Thank you. Bye.